Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers, an artist interview podcast produced in association with Beats Per Minute. I'm your host, Jeremy J. Fissette. On this episode, we get to meet Sally Potter. Sally Potter is not a name you would normally associate with music, but since we don't only do music here on Meet Our Makers, I was very excited to have her. But of course, she is here for a music reason. Sally Potter is best known as a filmmaker. She has made a wide array of films, such as Orlando, Ginger and Rosa, most recently The Road's Not Taken with Javier Bardem and Elle Fanning. But now she's actually releasing her debut full-length record, which is called Pink Bikini. In this chat, she and I talk quite a bit about Pink Bikini, including what led her to release a record of such personal singer-songwriter-style songs about her childhood, her adolescence, and a lot of other things after such a long career in cinema. We talk about the differences and similarities for her between her filmmaking and her songwriting, as well as how her score work, because she has been composing her own scores for years, has bled into her own personal songwriting. We talk about some specific songs, themes, influences, and a lot more about this really, really special record. We do talk about film. She has had a long, successful career in independent cinema. We talk about what first got her interested in film and filmmaking, her foundational cinema experiences, and we go for a few minutes on Orlando with Tilda Swinton and why it's still her most revered and discussed film and why she even took on the task of adapting Virginia Woolf in the first place. We talk about a lot in between. It was a really delightful chat. And if you're a fan of any of her movies, music, whatever the case, you just want an interesting chat with a really interesting and storied artist, I think you'll enjoy this. Before we start, I do want to remind you, Meet Our Makers is now on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash meetourmakers, and you can, for a very low monthly fee, become a patron of the show. Help me out, and eventually I'll help you guys out with some fun perks. You can also find us on Instagram at meetourmakerspodcast and Twitter at meetourmakers underscore. So thank you for listening. Please enjoy. This is me meeting Sally Potter. to be with you yeah thank you so much for uh hanging out for a little bit um when i got the email a few weeks back about your record getting announced uh i sort of jumped at the the chance to invite you because i was like oh that that's sally potter that's she's making a record (laughs) i was like that's cool let me look into this and then i was like you know what i'll take a shot and luckily everyone was pretty on board so thank you for uh for joining me for a little bit great okay thank you um, so you are obviously, uh, to most people more known as a filmmaker, uh, I don't know why I emphasize it that way as a filmmaker. Um, and we will talk about film of course, but I do want to stress and talk about this album coming out, um, which is out July 14th and it's called Pink Bikini. Um, it is your first traditional studio album. I know that you've done a lot of composing work for your own films and things like that, but it is your first sort of studio, sort of more pop-oriented record. Um, has this kind of music making always been a part of your life and it's just something we didn't know about until now? It's been a, a more private part of my life, although mm-hmm. actually in my film scores, um, 
I've often used my own voice as part of the texture of the score, mm. but but rather under the radar, one might say. Um, so I think, it, yes, it's it's a new it's a new departure to put my own voice uh, center and to be singing my own songs rather than giving my songs to other people to sing. Have you done that a lot before? Um, I have in in some projects, and I in my twenties I was singing um, in several groups. I was singing songs written by other people, and I was doing a lot of improvised music, in which I improvised the lyrics as well. So it's not completely new territory, but at the same time, it's for me a very a very new thing to do mm. to decide to yeah to put out an album with songs that are so personal also. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this particular moment in my life, yeah. What what brought you to this moment to decide that now is the time? Well, I f- I find that the choice of of projects and and what I do, and I'm sure this is in common with many other people, often seems to decide itself. It's not necessarily a conscious, rational decision. Like, oh, hey, I think now's the time to do an album. Mm-hmm. It's more like an accumulated feeling of of longing and necessity and a feeling of this is the form at the moment that I want to really spend some time working deeply with and try to understand better, really, what mm-hmm. a song is, what a song can do, um, what lyrics can do differently than the spoken word and is is a lyric a poem or is it, you know, what is it exactly and so on. So the wanting to just explore all of that and and work with a form that I've always loved to listen to mm. um, and have sung some versions of, but not not in this particular way before. I mean, I think it's no accident that that it came out of the pandemic time when everybody right. was very much driven. In, into themselves mm-hmm. and in, into a feeling also of, you know, life is short and precarious and fragile and we don't know where it's going. And if there's anything in your heart that you, you really want to do or feel you want to explore, don't wait, you know, mm. do it do it now. So I think that there may have been a little bit of that too. And, of course, songwriting compared to filmmaking is a very portable form and a much easier means of production um if you could see me you'd see that i was sitting in a hut i mean i'm speaking i'm speaking from the center of france in a hut with a view of mountains in the distance Mm. with a keyboard keyboard next to me and in front of the computer where i usually write with logic my stuff and with a microphone behind me so this is where in solitude I can work for hour upon hour upon hour. And at the end of that hour upon hour and about, there's a song with a full arrangement with all mm. the instruments sounding more or less like instruments, although they then get replaced one by one by real musicians um, in the arrangement. But it's it's luxurious in a way to be able to take a form so, so far alone. The filmmaking is you're very dependent as a director on an enormous number of people working with you under your direction right. to make something happen. It's complex. It takes enormous amounts of time um, and effort. So, so there's something luxurious about exploring this 
um, more intimate form, which, however, is one of the oldest forms there has ever been. Yeah. The, the, the singing voice telling a story um, of some kind. And I think with, with instruments or without instruments, with rhythm, with a guitar, with a piano, with or much earlier, perhaps just with the sound of stamping feet. And I think there's something about returning to that basic human, beautiful, glorious, and simple physical thing that is in fact so hard to do, <laughs> mm. to do what to do well. Um, so it's, it's it's been a wonderful and very scary experience in certain <laughs> ways. Yeah. Do you think that the 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 years of of film composing has sort of influenced this record at all, or did it feel like a total break from that? Oh, it's hugely influenced okay. because by, by working working on all the scores, I've spent hours and hours of my life in studios, mixing, mm. editing, recording, working with musicians, learning how to arrange, um, uh, learning how to get the best out of people, learning how to make make soundtracks and. Soundtrack. The, the difference is that people often, when they watch a film, absorb the music almost subliminally. They don't really listen to it that carefully unless they see somebody making it or see somebody singing it if, if there's a voice involved. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's as a, if you like, as a, a training for how to work with many different levels of sound and and music and with musicians and with arrangements. Mm. it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful and in its own right very valuable thing to do um however it is different of course moving into a song or a sequence of songs each right. of which has its own disciplines it's its own genre history people have expectations about the kind of shape it might have there's many choices to make about whether to leave a voice very raw and very direct or whether to mediate it through all kinds of studio sounds in this case i made the choice to leave everything very raw very direct this is just simple straight vocal recording there's no vocoders or other yeah. effects effects studio effects um and then the, then there are musicians playing the arrangements so it's it's traditional in that sense and um intimate was the goal yeah the feeling that i wanted to feel as if the somebody listening felt as if the song was being sung to them individually close close up it, they, these are not songs being sung in an in an enormous hall to an enormous public you know they're, right they're they're like i'm singing to you yeah they, they are very intimate there's not even a huge amount of sort of reverb or anything like that it feels very like you're in in a, in, yeah. in a space with these people making music. Yes, it's funny. I just listened because I thought I better listen to these songs. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't listened to them for a while. I've yeah. had a, after listening to them nonstop all the time, internally, right. re-recording, re-recording, re-editing, remixing, and so on. I left it alone, and I just listened. I thought, my God, there's there's almost nothing. I mean, this really <laughs> is naked. You know, there is no reverb. It's yeah. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, but it's very, very, very um, held back in that way. Mm -hmm. But but very forward in the other way, in the sense that it could be literally somebody singing 
a, a yard or a meter away from you into mm -hmm. right, right right next to you into your ear yeah so yeah you wrote all the lyrics to this you wrote all the music you you said you, you arranged um ahead of time and then the instrumentalist sort of played your arrangements is yes. there is there any sense of like intimidation or nervousness about going into this specific kind of endeavor now after so many years in the film industry Oh, total terror! You mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, on unmitigated shaking levels of fear. I mean, it's very exposing, and mm -hmm. it's very, yeah, it's terrifying. But you know, I've always thought terror is or fear should never be a reason to to hold you back, right? To hold me back. You know, it's like scorn the fear and do it anyway, if possible, um, and to, and to go for it you know and yeah. and see see what comes out and see how people respond yeah and you've mentioned the songs on pink bikini being particularly personal i know the 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 press around the record is sort of describing it as being inspired by your youth and your adolescence and young adulthood are are we meant to take this album as almost a sort of memoir or is it a little looser than that well one of the lines in the first song is, you know, is this really a memory or a faded photo that I can see? Mm -hmm. um, that's trying to give a clue in a way about how we how we work with memory and how you work with memory in a lyric. You know, in the act of of writing something or describing it, you kind of you you reinvent the past in a way, even if you try and make it exactly true to what you experienced. In the sh in the shaping of it, in the crafting of it, in the making it rhyme, in the making it scan, and and so on. Inevitably, there's poetic license and transformation um, along the way. So I try to have a yardstick of a kind of emotional truth about everything, even if these were not necessarily all my direct experiences. Maybe they were things I had observed. Or maybe they were things I had imagined, mm -hmm. and um, but there is, I hope, a feeling of of truth in them. Now, memoir, I don't know. I think if I was writing a memoir, it would be much fuller, and there would mm -hmm. be much more context. These are short, you know, songs, poems, if you like, lyrics, right. and so I hope they have the directness of personal truth. Um, without telling the whole story but they are about or based around the a period of my life of everybody's life I'm sure of your life too of the teenage years when you transition out of dependency and childhood into a kind of independence and adulthood and that's a confusing set of 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 goodbyes and hellos Mm. Overla overlapping with longings and griefs and losses and it's very 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 intense and so I thought I felt that it was um, an incredibly fertile rich area to explore lyrically um, being sung as if I was in it, imagining myself into the my own shoes or somebody else's shoes, because I've changed obviously a great deal since I was a teenager. So mm. it's almost like looking back to another person. Um, but at the same time, it was me. So it, it opens up the whole kind of mystery of 
who we are at different points in our life. You know, are we really the same person all the way through? When we look back, are we looking back at an imaginary past or at mm. things that actually happened or at feelings and so on? So exploring all of that and putting extending a hand in a way to this vulnerable, vulnerable, troubled teenager and and in a way letting her know that it will pass and there mm. will come a, come a time when all these experiences have become material for songs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's that great line on, on one day, mm. the, the song that sounds most explicitly sort of like you're, you're, you're singing to your older self where you say, yes, one day the shame will have gone. The wounds will have healed. Yes, um, so creating this album is almost at least partially, like you say, sort of like reassurance for that younger self. Yes, and for each of us in our relationship with our younger self. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure you can hear that I'm saying, yes, this is personal, but I'm also deflecting it from being only <laughs> about me because right. I think as a writer, as a film writer, you know, you often base things, you try to base things in things that you know, but there's lots of ways of knowing things and knowing mm -hmm. people. One of them is by being that person. The other is by observing other people closely. And the other is this voyage into the imagination in which the people you create on the page on the, or on your laptop or wherever you write become as real as you are. And I think it's it's that area also that this is exploring. Yeah. So let's talk also about the sort of stylistic element of this record, because I, you know, I, I've seen a few of your films. I was a film student, so I've been aware of your work um, for quite a while, but obviously not as a traditional songwriter. So I had no idea what to expect when I hit play, you know, on the yeah. album. Yes. Um, and so I was writing my notes down for this talk as I was listening for the first time. And I wrote that it sounds sort of almost folky and jazzy at the same time almost I wrote almost like if Leonard Cohen made a French pop record and then I got to the song ghosts where you actually yeah, mentioned Leonard Cohen. yeah 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 um are those styles would you agree with that or are those styles of things you actually usually enjoy like that kind of that kind of music well I certainly thought a lot about what was the kind of music I was listening to in my teenage years mm -hmm. and um I was listening to Leonard Cohen on repeat I was mm -hmm. also listening to Bob Dylan on repeat who also was, gets name checked there <laughs> yes exactly in that particular song I was also listening to everything that Billie Holiday ever recorded mm -hmm. and Ella Fitzgerald and Patsy Cline and then I was listening to Lottie Lenya and I was listening to Bert Brecht and Kurt Weill and so on so in fact my tastes were very eclectic but I think that I was aware with these songs that they came out of the directness of, of the songwriting, let's say, of, of Dylan and Leonard Cohen, both of whom are primarily poets. Mm -hmm. Dylan more, I would say, coming out of the history and the genre of protest song. And Leonard Cohen coming more out of the both a mixture of, of music as a form of transcendence, of meditation, a kind of atmosphere for living, but also exploring the this the strangeness really of love and attachment and impermanence all of which create a very melancholy uh, uh feeling that a teenage girl certainly can kind of 
understand very well indeed mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the but also can understand protest because for example in my teenagers i was on lots of marches against uh, nuclear weapons i was uh, a really young activist in that way and felt that it was my responsibility to try and save the planet from extinction so i can relate very strongly to young climate activists now for example who who have that same feeling of anger and responsibility and bewilderment actually about the absurdity of of anybody ever wanting to risk the glories of life on earth Hmm. um through for whatever reason so i think where did we start on this line of thought (laughs) (laughs) um the styles of the music Leonard Cohen thank thank you I've taken I took took a great big walk around the subject that is so okay (laughs) (laughs) now but the French bit not really I Mm. don't I don't really remember listening to except for Edith Piaf actually who I did listen to but I don't really remember listening to sort of French balladeering, I always found it a bit over-romantic, actually, mm. when, when I did listen. I, I liked the hard edge, the hard the hard tones of Bob Dylan or, you know, and the, 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 the grit of it or, in Leonard Cohen's case, the romanticism, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, um, at the time. Yeah. They both they both felt both of the them felt like they were going right to the limits of what they could do with the song form. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they were right out there pushing it and pushing it. And of course there were many others who were brilliant. Um and but I but I think it would be true to say I listened to those two more mm. than, than some of the others. I mean, genre-wise though, jazz absolutely. I was mm-hmm. listening to more, more instrumental jazz than song, other than Billie Holiday, I would say. Um, but I listened hugely to uh, most of the jazz greats, you know, from Charlie Charlie Parker to Miles Davis to Thelonious Monk or whatever. And it was those wonderfully broken up, developing, evolving riffs, mm-hmm. which, however, which, however, underneath had a very clear chordal structure and development and it was that mixture of of sort of freedom and discipline in jazz that I found absolutely intoxicating and made me made me want to move so if there's any of that influence in in this I'd be delighted I mean there's certainly an upright bass which which is Mm. written was was written in I would say much more in the jazz genre than anything else I also use electric bass but the upright bass if you like is the perhaps the strongest single jazz sound in the arrangement. Mm. Um, and then there's acoustic guitars and electric guitar played by and the harp too. And the harp that makes so an appearance too. Yeah. Yep. Um, do you have a favorite song on this record? I try not to have favorites <laughs> like, like people say about their children, isn't it? Yeah. But, but I think, I uh, at different times have some of them were more enjoyable to sing than others. Mm. Um, the flames was very enjoyable to sing, and it's um, because it's so much about longing and desire. It it made it easy. How can I put 
how can I say, there was a kind of flow to that that was very nice to see. I mean, Ghosts, the one we've just been talking about that mentions both Dylan and then Nicole, and I think that I enjoy that, mm. uh, I guess. I don't know, I enjoy different ones at different times. Yeah, yeah. yeah Ghosts has, that was another um, line I pulled out, the line, uh, I'd rather be the singer than his muse. Yes. <laughs> I love that line, because it's kind of like you asserting yourself in this in this realm of saying like, well, I'm going to do this too. I'm going to sing these songs that I wrote as well. Yes. I mean, that came out of a real feeling that I had when I, not only when I was listening to music, but when I was watching films, when I was reading books and so on about authorship, Mm -hmm. which was mostly male, not Mm -hmm. exclusively, especially not with books. There were so many great female writers since a long time because it's the the cheapest form. So nobody can stop a woman picking up a a pencil and piece of paper at her kitchen table and writing a book. Right. Um, The the bigger the means of production gets, the harder it's been for for women and people of colour to sort of break in and get their hands on the the machine, if you like, Mm -hmm. you know, and and find their, their real authorial voice. But I often found when I was uh, watching films, I say reading books or listening to music, that there I would be, let's say with Leonard Cohen, as we've been talking about him, listening to this wonderful deep voice, singing mostly within a few notes, you know, very, 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 very simple melodically things, very interesting lyrics, but often about these mystery women, mm-hmm. Mary, Marianne or Suzanne. And I gradually realized that, hold on a second, you know, what what is this divide here? That there's this person whose work I absolutely love, but I want to be like him. Mm. I don't want to be Marianne. I don't want to be Suzanne and her tea and oranges, you know, somehow on the periphery of life, being the one that mysteriously inspires somebody to write a song about them. No, I want to write the song. And and similarly feeling that about Roberta and feeling a kind of colleagueship and then realizing I was excluded from this magical circle. I had exactly the same experience in film, of course. Mm-hmm. As, a, as in my early days of being a film director, that there was somehow a secret society from which I was excluded um, and would have to really fight my way in, fight my way to find a voice, fight yeah. my way, fight my way to find a right to have a voice. So that became a t- part of the texture of these songs. Is about a girl, what a young female person wanting to break through these invisible limits that seem to be imposed on the potential of what she could do in any area. This could be, I could be talking about being a scientist or mm-hmm. a mathematician or um, anything, anything really. Every every young woman growing up, certainly of my generation, will know, will recognise and know what that feeling is. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I think the younger younger generation, and I'm not saying it's all easy for men too, by the way, just to put yeah. that out, but at all, there are many other different kinds of difficulties and pressures, and I'm well, well aware of that. But um, I grew up female, and so I'm, I'm aware of that 
and and what what it takes really to mm-hmm. to break to break out or break free from the strictures that that and limits that society seems to have been placed on you are often which are often invisible to you and invisible to others too but it, you experience as a heavy weight on your back or as a kind of silencing so these songs are, are that journey of somebody breaking out of that finding the voice finding an equilibrium hmm. and 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 in a way healing from this what can only be as from from troubled and turbulent years and experiences yeah do you do you see any connections between the songs on this record and any of your films throughout your career yes the the film called ginger and rosa which mm-hmm. starred the starred the wonderful Elle fanning oh yeah um, she when she was only 13 at the time i know that's by the way one of 16 oh. yeah that's one of my favorite like performances maybe she, ever she's so good uh, in that she's absolutely astonishing and i loved working with her it was quite an amazing hmm. experience um and i i think mutually so um and of that that also covers uh teenage well a, a shorter period of six just the year of being 16 uh, um and uh, some very complicated family relationships in it so mm-hmm. i I think that I've obviously was when I was writing that I was aware that there was something very rich to be explored in that time, and also very aware looking out into something I did not grow up with, which is social media, mm-hmm. and seeing the new pressures um, compare and despair. You know all the all the pressures on appearance all the other things that have come with that whole different way of of looking at yourself and looking at others mm-hmm. um and i think there's there's lots of there's lots of parallels really um across all these different generations and across all the technological developments that mean that we communicate with each other in different ways in each subsequent generation well, it's interesting, too, because from the films of yours I have seen and then the others that I at least um, am aware of, including Ginger and Rosa and Orlando and things like that, your your films do often seem to explore characters who are reacting to their surroundings and sort of figuring out how to make it through those surroundings. And I feel like that theme lends itself relatively well to this album as well. Survival, yeah. Yes, exactly. Survival through difficulty. Right. And what I think, if I've learned something through my close relationships over the years with many, many, many beloved others, it's that you don't have to dig very deep to find out that everybody has a story. Mm. Everybody has struggled. Everybody, in some sense, is trying to make it through and find a way to survive and be a good person and be, you know, and or, or whatever their amb- ambition is in life. And um, so I think survival, yes, survival through difficulty hmm. is is a good, it's, it's a turbulent and rich area to explore, but it's also a good um, 
how can I say mess? I'm hesitating over the word message because I don't like to feel that <laughs> my films, all my songs have a message. They don't, but they're communicating something mm-hmm. and with with in a way love for strangers. The strangers who will watch my films, I never quite know who. I know that over the years, many millions of people have watched accumulatively what I've made as films. With the songs, I don't know who's going to listen. I think mm-hmm. every time every time you make something, it's like putting a message in a bottle, throwing it into the ocean, and hoping it will it will arrive somewhere on a beach, and somebody will will find the bottle and and find the message in the bottle. And I think that's the feeling that I have. But it's it's like how can I say? <laughs> it's an it's as if, and I think everybody who's ever been on a stage as I did in my earlier years, in my 20s and 30s, um, and looked out at an audience, you suddenly have this feeling that you love every single one of them. And people often say that for the stage, from a stage, don't they, in a mm. gig? Like, oh, I love you. I love you, London. Or I love you, yeah. I love you, LA, or wherever it may be. And it, it's a real feeling at that moment. It's a mm-hmm. real feeling, a primal connection where you know that the divisions that there are and the separations that there are from one to the other, whoever Mm. we may be, are illusory and that we are kind of one and we become united often through music, especially. Um, And there's a a kind of wonderful kind of synthesis that happens that is fueled by this unproblematic love, um, which can be misinterpreted as being show-busy insincerity. It's not. Right. It's a it's a real feeling. Hmm. So myself, as someone who studied film and, and fell in love with movies um probably when I was like 12 or 13 years old, um, I have a very distinct memory of the first few films that sort of exposed me to film as its own art form as its own thing as opposed to growing up and just watching movies to be entertained at some point there was a switch you know where i i, I saw a few things and i was just blown away that that yeah. this could happen what um, were they what were they um one is uh, terry zwigoff's ghost world yeah um i saw me and you and everyone we know yeah miranda july film and yes. that was also around when i started watching hayao miyazaki films Right. Okay. Um, so Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke and those kind yeah. of huge stories. And I was just sort of dazzled by that idea that you could make something that was important and yeah. moving and interesting. Yeah. Um, do you remember any of yours that sort of ushered you into that world? Wow. Um, well, I I watched a lot of um early Russian cinema like Eisenstein and Vertov, the really experimental mm. early earliest days, the 1920s, when people were really finding out what what montage was and what, mm-hmm. what it what it could do. And then I would think that I was there was French New Wave, um, Godard and Truffaut, like Jules Jim, films like that. And mm-hmm. then obviously Orson Wells, Citizen Kane, the, those and pa- Paul and Pressburger, The Red Shoes, or mm. A Matter of Life and Death. Mm-hmm. And then um, Satyajit Ray, the Apu trilogy. And then, also, I mean, the list goes on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, it's I'm like, sure it does. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't try and kind of remember like a, a, a eureka moment of one film sticking out. What, right. really, what really attracted me was that there was this 
fantastic, marvelous, wonderful, exciting, thrilling body of work to explore that I would probably never reach the end of. Just True. the same feeling I get when I go in a bookshop. I, I feel like I want to read all of them. But yeah. when, when, when <laughs> am I going? When am I going to have the time? And I had that feeling about cinema too. And I would, I never felt that there was a really big difference. Let's say between singing in the rain, on the one hand, you know, great big Hollywood mm-hmm. song and dance movie with a, with serious ideas behind the story, but but re, the form of it was absolutely popular entertainment. On the one hand, and on the other hand some very rigorous and obscure and interesting early piece of Russian cinema that was, you know, taking on the subject of the revolution. And they're all all part of this same form. They were mm-hmm. all, they're very, un, cinema is a very, despite all its differences, it's a very unified form. It's like it, it travels internationally. You can have all these cultures in your hand, in front of your eyes, you can enter all these different worlds, one after another, and they're all aspects of the same prism of of of, of light, you know, of of, of illumination, of of somehow mm. entering entering worlds. That was the great attraction for me. Was that feeling that in the frame there was a world, uh, and that I could go into that world, and I could write that, I could invent that world, I could right. write it. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's part of what inspired me to end up going into film in college was that same idea of like, well, how do I do this? Because this is so exciting. Yes, exactly. Um, your first film was 1983's The Gold Diggers, but I feel like uh, with Julie Christie, we should say the great Julie Christie. Yes, yes. Um, but I feel like you sort of broke into international visibility with Orlando. Um, and it does feel like Orlando is the one that still gets talked about the most. I don't know if that's true in your own spheres. Um, it is true. It is true. And everybody that worked on it says the same thing to me. Uh, <laughs> Sandy Powell, the costume designer, you know, who's had whatever it is, six Oscars yeah, now for, the for great other Sandy things. Powell, yeah. the, la- the last time we met, she said, you know, the only thing anybody ever wants to talk about, Sally, is <laughs> Orlando. <laughs> Tilda says the same thing. So Aww. in a way, we're all both cursed and blessed by the fact yeah. that, that that film that was made 30 years ago is the one that both kind of haunts us, but it haunts us in a good way. Right. You know? Because what's happened is it has endured in the most incredible way. It just mm-hmm. keeps on being shown. Yeah, I saw it in school, so that. There you go. Right. There you go. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> um, and so now I'm an English teacher. So my, I'm always curious about adaptations. And I, I was wondering what inspired you to tackle a Virginia Woolf story, because from an English teacher's perspective and a literature student's perspective, um, you know, Woolf's texts seem particularly tricky to adapt. So like I, I, I would probably be too intimidated to ever try it. Yeah. Um, but what was it about Orlando that sort of struck you and made you want to go, okay, I, I can make this into something? Well, when I first read it as a as a teenager, about probably about the time that I'm talking about when I was also uh, listening to Dylan and Danny mm-hmm. and I was also reading avidly all the time and certainly reading Virginia Woolf. Um, I think I was 14 when I first read it, and I experienced it as a very visual book. And then later when I came to read uh, Virginia Woolf's diaries, she talked about that her aim with it actually 
was to, as she put it, exteriorize consciousness. So she mm. was create, creating images that would take us into the mind, how the mind works, how it play, playfully works. And so for me, it was very visible. I could, I could see it. I was reading the book, but I could see it mm-hmm. on the screen, screen. So I felt a kind of peculiar confidence from that point of view. However, when I started talking to people about the fact that this was what I wanted to do, and I was starting to write notes and on an adaptation, how I might do this, how I might do that, what I would edit out, what I would leave in, mm. whatever, uh, the general response for many years was, you must be insane. <laughs> This cannot be done. It would be so expensive. And anyway, it's technically impossible. And anyway, it's a great classic and no one should ever touch it. <laughs> so it, I got, I would say, zero encouragement from the world. Yeah. But but that induced a kind of stubborn determination on my right. part. Because <laughs> I knew, because I could actually see it in my mind's eye. I could see the finished film while I was writing it. I was utterly confident that I could make these images come about. But mm-hmm. I was the only—I was the only one initially <laughs> who was confident. But you know, I did do it eventually. With, of course, working with um, a wonderful producer, Christopher Shepard, who we worked with—we worked together ever since. Mm. Who managed to pull together a co-production, uh, a very complicated, multi-country co-production, and Tilda Swinton, who you know remained loyal yeah the fantastic Tilda Winton at that point relatively unknown Mm -hmm. but who you know was very keen and was you know very patient as the years of trying to raise the money went on (laughs) year after year but she's kind of infamous for that (laughs) yeah we yeah we did it in the end yeah yeah no and it is the one it is like the one that endures I mean I saw Ginger and Rosa in college though it wasn't shown to me in a class I just found it um and then the uh the party is particularly interesting to me as well mm-hmm. um from a few years ago be- mostly because of the cast at first cuz yes. i mean what a stacked cast yes. of yes. wonderful actors yes um patricia clarkson one of my favorite actors cherry jones timothy spall so many good people um do you i mean tilda was with you early on in orlando but do you usually like have at least an ideal of who you'd want to be in your roles as you're writing them um, no, not always. Mm. Sometimes it's like if you get over attached, if I get over attached to thinking of one particular person in the role, I might shape it too much for that particular actor. And then mm-hmm. in the end, they don't in the end, they don't do it. They can't <laughs> do it or they, they don't want to do it or it's the wrong timing or something. Right. So it's better to, in a way, in the writing process, just let the let the character and the story go where it needs to go as a writer and then and then uh, imagine casting yeah start to meet people and you know see whether the first choice people are turn out to be the right first choice or or actually there's somebody better or more appropriate lurking mm. but with the party the idea was how can i i was i set myself the task how can I, with the most minimal of means, tell the most exciting story with my the best actors in the world and shoot it in two weeks so that it's, pos- <laughs> so that it's possible to get these people in their in their difficult and busy lives? And that's how we did it. So it was. It was shot in two weeks with wow. this fantastic cast, um, all in one shot, all in one place. Yeah. And and it was a, a very exciting thing to do. And of course, a lot of it is comedic. So, uh, albeit 
acid, bitter, bittersweet comedy, <laughs> political comedy. But it, we had a lot of uh, laughs making mm. it, and um, it was a, a, a very, very exciting film to make. So my last question, because I know we're running short on time. Um, I'm curious, since you've been making films for a while, you've inspired a lot of, I think, new filmmakers over the years. Um, can you think of any of the sort of bigger or more impactful lessons that you've learned on one of your own sets that has helped you become a better filmmaker? You can never praise people too much. Hmm, that's a good I, one. I spend a lot of time um, appreciating when I notice, it has to be truthful, but mm -hmm. when I no notice somebody, somebody doing something, whether it's somebody behind the camera or in front of the camera, doing something that I really appreciate, I tell them and I thank them. And um, the it creates a wonderful atmosphere. It becomes like a kind of nectar that gets spread around mm. when when people feel respected and when they feel seen, when they when they feel that the work they're doing is is appreciated and respected, they visibly grow and blossom in front of in front of your eyes. So that's one very 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 simple thing, mm. and and another is to keep your nerve because often as a director writer director you're the only one who holds the whole project in your head. Everyone else has a section of it. Even right. the lead, even the lead actor they only really know their own part. They don't know how it's all going to fit together. They don't know how you're going to edit it. Lots of things that what kind of sound or music you're going to put on. So you have to keep your nerve and keep that feeling of, of singular responsibility on the one hand, um, which is a form, which is leadership. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, respect and appreciation for all these people who are giving you the very best of the work that they can do in order to, that your vision might become actual. Yeah. Well, those are two good lessons. I think we can learn from those in our own spheres as well. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, Sally Potter, for taking some time today to hang out and chat about movie making and films, but also your debut full-length album, studio album, Pink Bikini, which is out July 14th. Um, I had a good time and I really appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. You as well. Have a great evening. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.